The Shema is a prayer in the Old Testament. It's Deuteronomy chapter 6. That's where we'll be looking today. It's called the Shema because that's the first word of the prayer in the Hebrew language. It says listen or hear. And we've been looking at six key words in this important declaration. It's a, it's a prayer that declares our allegiance to God. It's a prayer that's rooted in the nature and character of God. And it's a prayer that helps us to know how to respond to God. And so we're going to look at that today, continue um, our study of the Shema. Let's, uh, today we're going to be looking at the word soul. We've looked at listen, Lord, love, heart, today's soul. Let's take a look. It says, Deuteronomy 6, listen, O Lord, uh, excuse me, listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. Today the word is soul. In Hebrew, that's the, the word is nephesh. You'll probably never use that in your life anywhere, right? There'll never be a test. It's kind of fun to know. Could you say that with me? Can you say nephesh? Nephesh. That's the word soul. That's what we're going to be looking at today. The first thing I want to do is define the word a little bit for you. Then I want to look today at the verses that come after verses 4 and 5, the next few verses in Deuteronomy chapter 6, to help us understand what it means to love the Lord in this way. And so the first thing we see as we get our arms around the definition, the Hebrew word for soul refers to the whole person. It's the essence of who we are. Now last week we talked about the heart. We talked about that as the inner person. Now in, in our American culture, when you talk about the heart, we mean emotions. But in the Hebrew world, this word didn't just mean emotions. It included emotions, but it also encompassed the whole inner person, mind, your will, how you think, what you choose, but also your emotions as well. So that's the inner person. Now this word soul today isn't just limited to that. That's often how we think about it, but it actually refers to, in the Hebrew language, the whole person, the entire person, everything that you are. Now, let me just mention that these words that we're looking at, they're not technical words. They're not like philosophical words. They're like any word that they have a range of meaning. And so sometimes the the meaning of the words can overlap in some of the different contexts in which it's used. And you get this in English. So we have a whole bunch of words in English to talk about the inner person. You might talk about your consciousness or your ego, your personality, your psyche. All of those words are unique, but they also have some overlap of meaning. Sometimes that's the case in these Hebrew words as well. But the soul is a little bit more specific than the heart, a little bit different sense of that than the heart. In the English world, when we think of the soul, we pretty much think of that non-material part of us within, right? It's the part of us that survives the death of our mortal bodies. And to a great extent, this is derived from the ancient Greek culture. In the ancient Greek culture, the soul was that uh, non-material part that eternal essence that's trapped in your body until death. It would be like the the ghost in the machine. That's the Greek idea of the soul. That would be completely foreign to the writers of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you don't have a soul. You are a soul. You see? It's not just part of you. It is you. It's who you are, the essence of who you are. And so... 
that nefesh, that's a living, breathing, physical being. And often, in fact, the word in the Bible is just used as a synonym for me or I. A person in Hebrew would say, my nefesh, they just meant me. Let me give you an example of that. In Psalm 119, the translation in English says, let me live so I can praise you and may your regulations help me. It says, let me live so I can praise you. If we were to be really literalistic about this, we'd translate it like this. Let my nefesh live so it can praise you. You see, he's just this kind of a synonym for, for me as a person. And what he's emphasizing here is not just the inner part, but he's saying, look, my whole being, my outer life, my inner life, all of it, I want it to offer praise to God. See, so your soul in the Bible means your entire identity, your personality, your whole self. It's, your nephesh is essentially the core you. Okay, so... The core you. So let's, we're going to be thinking about that as we apply this throughout our understanding of Deuteronomy chapter 6. So let's think about that in, in terms of the bigger picture. That if we look at uh, all the things the Bible has to say about this, we, we get this picture that God always intended the human soul to come to dwell in a place of deep contentment, not necessarily comfort or convenience, but of contentment. And the way we do that is to love God with our whole soul. That, that foundationally, our nephesh is most fulfilled when we're walking in step with God's ways. And the Bible uses a word picture like of a tree that's planted alongside of a stream of running water, a tree that's planted deep in fertile soil. There's always nutrition, always something to feed this tree is always there. And that's a picture of what God intends for our soul. And so the very foundation of who we are, we're meant to be connected to this ever-flowing, abundant source of life that is God. We're meant to be deeply rooted in this loving relationship with our Creator. And when that happens, then your life is filled with vitality and joy and purpose. That's what the soul is all about in the Bible. And so when we read the Shema, and we come to the part that says, Love the Lord your God with all your soul... It's calling us to offer our entire being with all of its capacities and all of its limitations to offer our whole being in an effort to love God. And when we do that, then we're in a condition of being intimately connected to God. Okay, so that's the, the kind of definition that I, that I want to take with us through the rest of our, our study this morning. And I want to talk now about three ways that we can love God this way. We're called to love God this way. Three aspects of that. And let's explore those for a moment together. The first one is we love the Lord <clears throat> with all of our soul by putting our complete trust in Him. Now, you sort of want to put Deuteronomy 6 into the context of the whole Bible. We can never read the Old Testament in the same way that a Jewish believer would read it. Because we always have to read it in light of its fulfillment in Christ. So Jesus is the lens that we look back and understand the whole Old Testament. Now, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, the Bible has this one message that we were 
created to have a relationship with our, with our Creator, that we are invited into that relationship with Him, and that relationship that God calls us to know Him, to belong to Him, He says, you'll be my people, I'll be your God, and He's constantly inviting people into that relationship. That relationship has a beginning. The beginning of that is God's initiative toward us and our response to God by faith. That means it's putting our faith in Him. It's complete trust in, in confidence in Him for life and eternity. So that's the backdrop of this command to love God. We can't really ultimately start to love God until we enter relationship with Him. Now think about it in terms of the people that the Shema is originally addressed to. These are the people of Israel. God had brought them out of slavery in Egypt, and He's brought them to the edge of this land of promise that He's going to give them. And Moses has led them the whole way. Moses is not going to go with them into the promised land. So the very last thing Moses does, he gathers them all along the border, and he has like a conference. He has an all-day speech. Deuteronomy is, is the gist of that speech reduced into writing. But originally, Moses didn't write this down. He delivered it orally to all of them. And it's kind of like a coach's pregame pep talk. It's like he's gathered everybody before the game, and he's getting them ready for the game by reminding them who they are and reminding them what, they're, what it's all about and, and going over with them everything that he's taught them so that he can send them forth and they can go into this new land and they can succeed in living out their relationship with God. Getting them ready for, to go. But see, in order to have this kind of relationship between God and Israel, God had to set up a way for the people to deal with their sin. Now, sin it just means any time that we go our own way instead of God's way. We choose our way instead of God's way. And when the people came out of slavery in Egypt, almost the very first thing that God did was He established a system to deal with sin because you know this in any relationship, when you sin against somebody, it puts a wedge between you, doesn't it? Well, how much more will that ultimately drive a wedge between us and this perfect holy God when we sin against Him? So God says, I've got to have a system to deal with sin so that you can know me, you can approach me, you can draw near to me, and we can have this relationship. And so in the wilderness, right outside of Egypt, God instituted this system of sacrifices when somebody sinned, they would offer a sacrifice to cover over, to pay temporarily for their sin. Usually it was the death of an animal. Sometimes it was other things, but often the death of an animal to pay for that sin until the next time to allow them to be in relationship with the holy God. And that's the heart of the religious ritual that you read about in the whole Old Testament. All the priests and, and all the ceremonies and the temple and all the rest, all of that was designed to provide a way to deal with human sin so that God could have relationship with us. Now, it was a repetitive process every single day offering sacrifices in the temple over and over again. Why? Because we keep on sinning. And because none of those animals was enough to provide an ultimate sacrifice forever. And every time an animal died to cover someone's sins, that was a reminder of the seriousness of sin and of the consequences of sin. Something had to die. 
And so Deuteronomy now, this is in the background. The people have been learning this for this whole generation. And they come to the edge of the land in Deuteronomy. And Moses is reminding them as people whose sins are covered and who've been graciously invited into this relationship with God, then how are you going to live in this new life that lies ahead? Now we learn that when Jesus comes, all that's temporary because the whole system looked forward to Him. And it's found its fulfillment in Him. Jesus paid for our sins once for all. So no more animal sacrifices are necessary. No more repetitive rituals were required because Jesus made a sacrifice that is enough to be ultimate for all time and for all people. And so all of those who trust in Him and the work that He accomplished on the cross have their sins forgiven and they're right with God. And then we live a certain way. We're going to see we live a certain way out of our gratitude for God and out of this new sense of identity that we have with Him. But what I'm getting at today is that you can't love God with all of your soul until first you've entered into that basic relationship with Him, that you belong to Him like Israel. That can't happen until your sin has been dealt with. And so it begins when you trust in Jesus and what He did on the cross and you entrust your life and your eternity into His hands And at that point, then you become part of His people. Then you become planted by that flowing river of life. Then you become made spiritually alive by God and you partake of all of His blessing and everything that He's doing in your life. And so now you can talk about loving God with your entire soul as a response to God's character and God's mercy. And so, of course, I want to invite you to make sure that that you've put your trust in Him today. If you haven't yet, that today would be the day to do that so that you can begin this journey, this relationship with Him. And for those of you who have that personal relationship with God because you've trusted in Jesus, then what you need to understand today is that that relationship with God impacts every single aspect of our everyday lives. Not just Sunday Not just a few things that I choose to let it impact, but every single aspect of our everyday lives. And that's where we get to the next way that we show our love for God. As we look at the verses that follow, the next way is that we demonstrate our love for the Lord by living to honor Him in everything we do. So again, let's let's take a minute and look at the verses that come right after the Shema that give us an idea of what that looks like in practice. And what it means to love the Lord with all of our soul. So, right, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. Verse 6, and you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. In other words, he says, loving God looks like doing what God says. And we saw two weeks ago when we looked at the word love that there's not just an affection, not just an emotional aspect to that, but there's also this active commitment and and action part of that love as well. And Jesus said the same thing to his closest followers on the night before he went to the cross. John chapter 14, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. In other words, don't tell me that you'll love Jesus unless you're willing to do what he says in your life. Keep my commandments, he says. Well, how do we do that? <clears throat> well, it starts with understanding what, what God, what pleases God. And we read that in his word. We read that in the Bible. 
And then as we understand what pleases God, then we do it. In other words, we submit to the things we've learned. We, we apply those things in our lives. Now I was thinking about how I've learned in my different times in my life, I've learned how to do this. And, and one time recently I found myself a few years ago, um, as suddenly I, I was a landlord. So my wife, my first wife passed away and there was a little bit of life insurance money and I was living all by myself in a five-bedroom house. So I went and looked for another place and I thought, well, maybe I'll just keep that house and rent it out. And then later on, when Sally and I got married six years ago, she had a nicer place than me, so I moved in with her and I have another place. And so suddenly I'm a landlord and, I, and this is all new to me and I don't know how to do this. And so I said, first of all, I'm going to figure out what the laws are and how to do a lease and, and what the rules and regulations. I said, more importantly than that, I just had this heart. I want to find out what God says about that. What does the Bible say about being a landlord? What does the Bible say about just and fair business practices and about how to treat others when you're in an economic relationship with them? Does God have anything to say about that? And if he does, how do I put that into practice in my life? Because I want to honor God and obey God in this new aspect of, of my life. And so what I'm saying is that we need to spend some time reading God's Word in the Bible and making an effort to understand what pleases Him and then adjusting our choices and our lifestyle and how we approach life accordingly. But, you know, it's not just a checklist. Some of us are... Maybe we were, grew up trained this way or been in some religious system maybe that said, here, here, keep the list, keep the list and you're okay. But look here, this soul, the, he says love God with your soul. That means what, what? With your whole being, with everything you've got. That's like deep, that's like all-encompassing. How do you reduce that to a checklist? Everything that you are as a person is designed to declare the Lord. And to give honor to Him. How we act, how we think, how we breathe. Your whole nephesh, your whole being is involved in this. So let me show you how the New Testament puts this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now he's talking in that context of that chapter about how some very mundane decisions that we all face every day, about what things we eat, what things we drink, how those have consequences maybe in the lives of other people around us. So he's trying to get us to be more uh, conscious of the impact of even simple mundane choices that we make. But he says, whatever your daily behavior is, here's the ultimate motive. You want that to honor God. You want that to bring glory to God. Whatever you have for breakfast... Whatever you drink before you go to bed, you want that to glorify God. This is what loving God is with our desires, with our motives, with our perceptions, with our thoughts, with how we talk, with what we do with our hands, with the way we face the challenges in our lives, with how we utilize our talents. Our entire being is to display that we love God, and that God is first. Now you can think about life like this. Life is the sum total of all the choices that we make. Does that make sense? Well, if you think about your choices, what else besides our choices shows what we're really committed to? Don't our choices show what we really value in life more than probably anything else? And so if you treasure your relationship with God, then your choices are going to show that. And so just think about some of the aspects of life. Ask yourself, 
What about money? Do you love God with your money, with all your money? Do you love God with your time, with, with all your time? What about your choices about what you watch, what you read, what you do for entertainment and relaxation, uh, the kind of friends you rely on, the, the things that you turn to when things are difficult? What do all these choices say about the nature of our love for God? And again, I'm not trying to give you a checklist, but I just want to illustrate how loving God is meant to pervade every aspect of who we are. Now, I know that goes against the flow sometimes. I know there are times when you feel like in your group you hang with, you're the only person who cares about loving God. That's tough. You're swimming upstream. I know there's some times when you just don't want to. Think, man, not God, you know, this time I'm going to take a pass. I'm just going to do what I want this time. Right? We feel that way sometimes, don't we? Or there are times when we just, we, we've been pushing on this and we feel like, man, I'm t- I can't do it anymore. I can't do the next thing. I'm out of gas. But you know what? We, we keep obeying God. We keep honoring God because that's what it looks like to love Him. And we do it relying on the strength that God Himself supplies by His Holy Spirit living in us. Okay? Final thing, when we describe what it means to love God with our entire soul, complete love, complete devotion to God means that we intentionally help other people pursue Him. So going back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, and again, continuing to look at the verses that follow verse 4 and 5, what we're going to see here is that loving God with your whole soul is not just a private matter. It's not just a vertical matter just between me and God, but there's a horizontal dimension to it as well that involves other people. And I think the best illustration I could think of this is when Sally and I got married, it wasn't just about me and her. Now, it'd be great if it was. <laughs> But there's at least five other people involved when you add up both of our kids, all of our kids. And, and to be honest, it, it, at least two, two of those kids have lived with us for an extended period of time. So it's definitely not just me and her. And then you add in the grandkids and the extended family and, and all of those relationships. Um, there's some great stuff there. I'm not complaining about that, but it's an illustration that my love for her has implications for other people than just the two of us. You with me? The same thing is true of our love for God. It's got horizontal implications as well. So we said, love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your strength. Verse 6, commit yourself to keeping God's commandments. And then in verse 7, repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road, when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Tie them on your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. It says, look, if you love God, then... You're gonna, you want to try to point your kids toward Him. You want to share this with your family. And you make it a seamless part of the fabric of everyday life from the time you get up in the morning to the time you go to bed at, at night when you're walking over here or you're doing that over there. He says it just becomes part of the fabric of your life together as a family. Now in that world, Israel was not commanded by God to go try to reach the pagans and bring them in to the fold, right? Because they were, they were unique, a special nation at that time. But they were commanded to reach the next generation. 
and to raise them to follow God. Well, since Jesus, God has opened the doors of faith to everybody from every nation, not just one special nation anymore. And so I think it's fair to apply these verses to our families, but beyond our families as well. And so as you commit yourself to love God, to honor God, to obey God, then it's natural that this would influence all the rest of your relationships in life. Right? That, that, that you'd want your neighbors and your coworkers and your friends to know this relationship with God as well. And the New Testament would talk about how we tell, want to tell the world. We love the Lord with all of our soul by incorporating Him into all of our relationships with the people around us. Now, Jesus expanded the Shema in a very similar way because one time He was asked by a religious leader, He says, what is the greatest commandment in the whole Old Testament? And here's how Jesus answered in Matthew chapter 22. Jesus replied, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. So what's the greatest commandment in the whole Bible? Jesus says, he quotes the Shema. Commandment number one, love God. But here's he said there's a 1B. Love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, these two are integrally connected together. They can't be separated. I think ultimately we can't really love our neighbor to the fullest extent unless it flows out of our love for God. But also, we can't say that we love God if we don't love the people around us either. In fact, it says that in the Bible in 1 John chapter 2. It says, if you say you love God, but you don't love, love your neighbor, he says, you're lying. You're lying to yourself. They're integrally connected. They can't be separated. Now, there's a lot of ways to love our neighbors. One of them, surely, probably the greatest way of all is to help someone pursue God. Now, that applies to your neighbor who's a Christian. And that's why we mentor people. That's why we do small groups. We come alongside people in these settings where if I'm just even one step ahead of that other person, I can help them to develop the fullness and the depth of their relationship with Jesus. And they can help me. But this applies to our neighbors who are not yet Christians as well. This is why we invest in relationships outside of the safe, comfortable little Christian bubble. This is why... We try to create an opportunity on Sundays when we gather for worship for this to be invitational and, and friendly to people who would come and seeking to figure out what, what's, which end is up and to, to try to figure God out and so they can come and we invite them to come to, so they can hear the good news of Jesus. And this is why we serve practical needs in the community. As Pastor John mentioned, we're collecting right now for Alpine Cares. That's why we do that. Why? So that ultimately people will have opportunity to experience God's love and come to know Him for themselves. Now, <clears throat> it's a good idea today. We're going to do a little heart check. This is a challenging series. We talk about giving our whole self, giving everything. That's challenging. But you know what? When you know how much God loves you, and you know He loves you unconditionally, you know God loves you whether you're messing up just as much as He does when you're getting it right. And it's... God's love for us that gives us a safe place where we can honestly look in the mirror. It's safe to do that because of God's love. So let's do that for a minute. So your nephesh is your whole self, your entire being. 
Is that how you're loving God right now in your life? Or are you holding back some element of who you are? Maybe it's a small thing, a habit, an attitude. Maybe it's a big thing like a key relationship. You're saying, God, I'm going to give you all of this, all the way from here to here, but this part, mm, nope, that's mine. God, I'm going to give you all of this here, but I have this one thing, this one relationship. No, I'm just going to take care of that myself right now. All in with all of our soul or just part? So here's what I want to close. I want to give you an encouragement. I want to encourage you that you can trust God with your entire life. You can trust God with your whole soul, with everything you are. You can trust Him with every single aspect of that. I want to say that because sometimes we hold back part of it because we think we trust our approach maybe better than God's approach. Sometimes we hold back part of it because we doubt. We Man, if I give this all over to God, then am I going to be okay? Is God really going to come through in that area? And as you grapple with not holding any part back from Him today, I just want to assure you, God can be trusted. He loves you so much. He loves you so much. And He only wants the best for you. It is safe to trust Him with your entire life. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your mercy. Thank You for all the good things You've done for us. Thank You for sending Your Son into the world to die in our place, to take our sins so that we can be right with You. And Father, we recognize that it's not just about praying a prayer so we get forgiven and we get a little bit of fire insurance for the future, but it's about a life. It's about a relationship. It's about connecting deeply with your plan and your purpose for us. And as we come into relationship, as we trust Jesus with you, we, we, wanna, we want that relationship to touch every single area of our lives from top to bottom, front to back, all the way through, past, future. Whatever we do, wherever we are, wherever we go, we want our whole life to love you. God, I, re- I recognize that by myself I can't do that. I'm not inclined to do that. I'm inclined to hold back. I'm inclined to trust my own ways. I'm inclined to do it my way. I'm inclined to love myself more than you. And so, so God, today we, we just want to confess as your people. We just want to confess the things that we're aware of right now where we've held back something from you. And we've said, no, God, I've got this. You can't just stay away. We just confess that to you, Father. And we say, God, we need you to come and fill us up with your spirit. Fill us up with your presence and your power in our lives. So that starting right now, we can give everything to you. We pray it in Jesus' name for his honor and glory. Amen.